when Okay, it's 1934 of the Church Bibles. Revelation to John, chapter 19, with a little title there, Hallelujah. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgment. He has condemned the great prostitute, who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Alleluia! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Alleluia! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Alleluia, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Oh, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The rider on the white horse. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he just said on many and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heavy heaven were following him, riding on white horses dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. 
Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's see what God reveals to Martin that he revealed to John. Well, that all seems perfectly clear. (laughs) Let us pray. As we come to the final chapters of Revelation, prepare us for the times ahead. Equip us with your Holy Spirit to empower us to serve you better. Enable us to support one another and help us take encouragement both from your victory at Calvary and in the battle to come. Amen. Personally, I've got so much out of our study of Revelation, and I'm beginning to see how important it is to have a good knowledge of some of the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, And I was quite excited this morning when I saw Matt's uh, monthly newsletter, and I saw that you've been studying Isaiah chapter 63, and we'll come to that uh, a little bit later, quite a challenging chapter that is but uh, it's it's given me a new motivation to read some of these uh, visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and etc and to get even more out of this book of Revelation there's so much to cover in this chapter of Revelation and you'll be glad to know uh, despite uh, the warnings from uh, Sarah that I might go on for an hour that I'm leaving out many bits Um, and there's a health warning that I've researched quite a number of commentaries uh, which have all said conflicting things and I've come to my own interpretation of some of the puzzling events that are described here but I encourage you to do your own study and see what you think test it out and maybe you'll be led into great truths as well and there's a lot in this passage and so I unashamedly have uh, cherry-picked some of the highlights to consider tonight so that you can all get home and find out what happened in the cricket. So we're moving now into the final acts. And I think the imagery is actually starting to get a little bit easier to follow. We can start to go back into Revelation and see some of, some of these echoes and, 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 and the interpretations that have already appeared in the book. So things that might have seemed puzzling start coming together. And especially some of the earlier sections throw light on some of these events. Now in my NIV Bible, um, 
I've got a structure here of, of this. The chapter's got just two sections, one entitled Hallelujah and The Rider on the White Horse. However, there are several different events covered here. Um, those who divided up the chapters when they finally wrote, uh, uh, published the Bible, didn't necessarily pick the most helpful structure. So in this chapter, we're going to start really with a continuation of what was discussed last week, which was the fall of Babylon. However, in the second half of the chapter, we're going to cover two invitations, the second advent and Armageddon. So there's a lot to consider. So Bible's at the ready and we'll start. So you might remember last week, we covered the judgment call on Babylon, followed by the prophecy of the lament of the kings, merchants and seafarers for their com comeuppance. Now, I don't wish to offer this as an indirect interpretation of the last chapter, but we've seen in the last two weeks the concerns of Western seafarers gaining free passage through the Straits of Hormuz. In the light of Revelation chapter 18, I wonder how much of this is posturing is due to the pursuit of peace and justice as opposed to a worldly concern for profit and economic prosperity. But the prophecies of the demise of the city of Babylon, and there's a, uh, an archaeological reconstruction of uh, one of the gates of Babylon, and I happen to went to that uh, earlier on this year. It's uh, conveniently in uh, Berlin <laughs> for some strange reason. Um, but really the, the symbology of, of Babylon is, is of the apostate states and it's to be contrasted with the new Jerusalem which represents the true theocratic nation which we're all called to become. So this prophecy which started in chapter 18 18, closes with the rejoicing in heaven up to verse 6. Now, it might seem a bit jingoistic for the worship of heaven, but looking carefully at the text, this praise is directed to God's accomplishments and not a gloating over the severity of the fall of Babylon. It's an interesting side note that the four occurrences of the word hallelujah are the only places we see this word in the New Testament. And it's interesting, well, at least to me, that most English translations of the Bible don't even have the word hallelujah in the Old Testament either, preferring to translate this Hebrew word as praise the Lord, which is what it means. So this passage is a true heavenly hallelujah chorus which is what inspired that fine gentleman, George Frederick Handel. Now, I can't help thinking that it's going to be a very noisy place in heaven. No need for a hearing loop there. Heaven is a place of contagious excitement, being in the presence of God and like-minded worshippers, rather than some solemn place with whispering voices. These hallelujahs are roars, and given that they are shouted by great multitudes, chapter 5 tells us that there are thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 angels. 
Not only that, in chapter 7, we see there are also an uncounted multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. I wonder how the monastic silent orders and the hermits are going to cope. So we have a praise of God's justice. Our praise is directed to him who is worthy and not a vindictive reveling in Babylon's demise. And another interesting point made by one commentator, the Ian Paul, who's uh, Matt's one of favorite uh, commentaries on Revelation, and he says that this is the last mention of an account of praise. There's no other mention of it in the New Jerusalem. And I think our worship might be in another dimension when we get there, when we have the whole perspective of a restored creation. It's possibly more akin to a walk with God in the garden, maybe. It's also uh, so overwhelming that the 24 elders who are our heavenly representatives, so most commentators associate them with the 12 patriarchs, of the Old Testament and the 12 disciples of the new. And here too, it's their last appearance as when we're caught up together with the heavenly hosts, we won't need to be represented. We'll be excited participants in paradise, no longer sons and heirs, but married to the King of Kings. So that makes it six times in this book that these elders fall down in worship. And I'm curious to know at what point they ever get up, because that's all they seem to do. Sometimes the sheer awesomeness of God Almighty bowls you over. This reminded me of the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, I am he, to those that were out to arrest him. They just fell to the ground at his words of declaration. That's in John chapter 18. Now, this judgment on Babylon has been building up to a climax. The martyrs have been patiently waiting since chapter 6. How long, they say. Maybe you're saying the same, too. But before we actually see it fulfilled in the battle, there's a slight intriguing diversion in verses 7 and 8, the wedding invitations. That's a copy of one that we've been sent, one of two this year that we've got. Um, now, I'm sure you're all familiar with the true church of Christ being ultimately he, his bride. Yes, I think so. See a few nodding heads. So what are the invites to the wedding? There are a few different opinions on this, but I was struck by the thought that you don't normally give the bride an invite. Here in verse 9 is blessing number 4 of, guess how many, <laughs> in Revelation... Seven, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Some believe this is the Jewish people whose faith was counted as righteousness. So you have the Noahs and Abrahams, Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Josiah. Those people come to mind. And I wonder if the full number works out to be exactly 144,000. But note to us follow bride our challenge is to get ready for our wedding day a common thing I hear women say about a wedding is what was the dress like 
and our dress will be made from the raw material of our righteous acts. Ian Paul suggests that, to, that we provide the linen, but God himself presents the garment to the bride to please the bridegroom, his son. An interesting thought. It's also interesting, I thought, to dwell on the purpose of marriage, which covers many functions. But one interesting one that struck me is communion, being of one flesh. What a fantastic prospect that is. There's also a Finnish proverb that says, love is a flower which turns into fruit at marriage. I guess we will only realize our full potential in heaven. We have another brief diversion where John himself falls at the angel's feet and gets told, told off for doing that. We should be pure in our worship, a cautionary note on the direction of our worship to the true God and not to angels or saints too for that matter. In Jewish tradition, to be betrothed, which I believe the status of the church is now, has many responsibilities and unfaithfulness was seen no less as adultery. So we need to keep the linen clean for the dress by avoiding inappropriate worship, not going down to anyone other than the one true God. We now come to the final and most challenging verses of this chapter, and we have a return of John seeing visions rather than hearing words. It makes it some uncomfortable reading. We're now at verse 11, and we see again the chiastic structure appearing in the book. Matt was talking about this the other week. But we have, assuming this will work, we see that Satan, the dragon, appears in chapter 12. The beast come in chapter 13. And Babylon is in the desert, is introduced in chapter 17. And then in reverse order, they're all dealt with. So we've had Babylon judged last week. And this week, we're looking at the beasts captured. And next week, we've got Satan thrown out. Um, so I think that uh, this key event, this, this what we're talking about tonight, is a key event in the whole history of mankind. Many passages have pointed us to this. And it covers the second coming of Jesus and the ultimate battle of Armageddon, which is technically the last battle. However, in the next chapter, we see armies gathering, but there's no battle. Jesus similar appears in heaven and on a white horse, which you might spot a similarity to the white horse of chapter 6, but I don't believe that that was Jesus as the rider in chapter 6, because they had only one crown, which was the laurel crown, and not the crown of a ruler, which is why the first horseman of the apocalypse is sometimes referred to as the Antichrist. Now, it's clear to me that the rider on this horse is Jesus because of the number of references made. He's, first of all, he's called faithful and true. And we see that that was given to Jesus back in chapter 3, verse 14. He is a true judge. And Jesus himself said this in Matthew 25 when he talks about separating the sheep from the goats. 
don't be a goat. The, th the next one is his eyes are like blazing fire, which we got back in, in chapter 1. He has many crowns. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 3, it says there's seven crowns. He has a sharp sword in his mouth, which is said twice in, this, uh, in Revelation, and he rules with an iron scepter, chapter 2. And that's also a, a direct reference and Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm. And finally, he has the title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, in chapter 17. And now look, there's seven of them. Now on first view, you might think that the second coming that we see here contradicts some of the other accounts, such as Acts chapter 1 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But I seem to have picked up that Revelation sometimes give the same account, from, but from different perspectives. So that's what I think we're having here. We're having the heavenly view of what's going on, whereas in the others, we had the earthly view. But there are a few things that perhaps we haven't appreciated or noticed before about our Jesus. He wages war. He has a secret name. His robe is dipped in blood and he leads the armies of heaven. Now the most unpalatable part, I think, is the bloodstained garment and it parallels the earlier passage in chapter 14 about the harvest and comes from the description of God's judgment in Isaiah 63. Note that God is the perfect judge. He's the you, you can be sure that when you come before the God, he's the perfect judge because he's all-knowing. There's no need for a jury. You don't need to present evidence or have anybody defend or prosecute against you. He knows all truth. He's pure and holy. There's no prejudice or partiality. And he's all-wise. He knows exactly what to do. Now, the outcome of the battle is certain. Even before it happens, an angel announces to the birds, which I assume are the vultures, to get ready for a feast. The vanquished will have no one to bury them. Such will be the completeness of the victory. So we've been building up for the, to this battle, kings of the earth with their armies versus Jesus and the heavenly army. Now, I'm not sure whether this will actually be in Armageddon or metaphorically in Armageddon, but looking at Isaiah 63, there's possibly another place, is Bosra. Um, but there's, there's another reason for going back into the Old Testament. Armageddon or, uh, is, is a place that's already been the site of many battles in, in the past. But with all this build-up to this incredible battle, I hope you're not disappointed with the description of the battle. This is not Game of Thrones. The first event is the downfall of the beast and the false prophet. They are not killed or engaged in battle, but captured and thrown alive to the lake of fire, a particularly severe judgment reserved for a few, reminiscence of people like Korah, Dathan, and Abiam in Numbers chapter 16, where they went down to the earth alive.
So of the unholy trinity, the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon, who is also known as the devil, we have at the end of this chapter only the dragon remaining. And you will have to wait till next week for the next exciting episode to see what happens with the devil. The rest of the kings and the army were killed by Jesus' sword and no other fighting is necessary. It was over quite quickly. The following armies of heaven were not needed and hence why they didn't need or have any weapons. And what is more, next week the chapter covers over a thousand years, the interpretation of which has divided theologians for years. So no pressure for next week to preacher. So in conclusion, what's all this got to do with us now? So may I suggest three take-home thoughts, which I've also provided a little handout for you to take away when you leave. First of all, hallelujah. Our God is a great big God, and he's in complete control Ecological disasters, armies, conspiracies, corruption, shipping lanes, they are nothing to him. His sheer awesomeness should make us fall in his presence. With God for us, who can be against us? Secondly, despite the apparent might of the kings of the earth, the beast and the false prophet, Jesus' victory is total and complete And he only needed the one weapon to defeat all those armies, the sword of his mouth. So let us sharpen our swords. And thirdly, the wedding wedding invites are out. Let us prepare our dress by being holy and acceptable in his sight. Let us pray. Hallelujah, for our Lord reigns. We thank you that, we, that you have complete control. Your judgments are perfect. Help us to align our wills to yours. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to fashion out our wedding garment linen to one of purity. And to help us overcome the tribulation ahead. Amen.